Thank you for tuning in to CIO Speaks with host Steve Ginsberg. If you enjoy this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Steve's research and insights. Welcome back for part two of our discussion with internet veteran, Bill Norton. We're going to continue our discussion on network strategy and internet peering. Thanks for listening. I think a lot of enterprises have moved to the cloud as you know, part of a corporate initiative that had a very fast timeline. Uh, in some cases, you know, when I talk to peers, sometimes it's driven by the board as much as it is driven by the organization itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever instantiates it, I think a lot of IT organizations are catching up with the reality, kind mm-hmm. of waking, waking up. Uh, and as we discussed, as there's more than one cloud, that kind of traffic that you just mentioned, that's easy to generate uh, just the second you start moving you know, so part of the reason people move to different CODs is the different capabilities. So yep. you might have developers want to be in Google Cloud or they might want to be in Azure and your main organization is in Amazon or it could be the other way exactly flipped. Um, once that starts happening, it's easy to start having uh, having teams move a lot of resource uh, assets between the different locations. Yeah, the other thing I've seen is um, you might find as you look around that there are some people who they were just brought up using the AWS portal and they live on that portal. They know how to spin up, um, you know, EC instances like that and move them around and to turn them off. There, there's even some logic that people have put into their, their scripts to do tests of the virtual machine that they just spun up because all virtual machines are not created equal. And sometimes you'll find a virtual machine that does not have the IO that you need or does not have the, uh, the, the, the speed for whatever reason that, that you need. And they'll turn it down and hope to go back to the pool and get a, a better virtual machine. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Google and Microsoft are pushing heavily to make it easy to do a lift and shift. Um, they can be less expensive in some cases. In some cases, the network connectivity might be more expensive in another location. But what, what you find is interesting, Steve, is that um, you find different personalities leaning towards these different uh, platforms. For example, corporate America might say AWS is, is perfect. It's what everyone goes for. That's where we're going to put our information. Other folks would say, you know, we're a Microsoft shop. Everything we do day in and day out is Microsoft. We're .NET. And every, all the tools we use, I worked with a client in cloud gaming that was entirely focused on Microsoft uh, uh, stuff. And those folks would probably be more comfortable and more familiar with the, the Azure portal, that infer, uh, interface. I found the Azure interface to be a bit more complicated and, and different. See, I came up in the AWS side. So Azure looks foreign to me. And that's why I think maybe people will be comfortable with that which they have started to use because they're using that particular. It, it's uh, interesting. Vendor. So, so I would normally hear such a that yeah. part of the discussion being based on the people uh, throwing up VMs essentially, like you know the developers and IT people supporting developers, those teams. But are you saying also that the portals um, make a difference too for the networking teams? Um, or are you talking more as a developer working in the in the cloud I, in that case? I'm thinking more about the 
um, the user and what their preference is. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm spinning up a, a new version of my website now, and uh, I have a choice. Do I want to put it up on a, a free AWS account or a free Azure account or a free Google Cloud platform account? And uh, I will probably go where I'm most comfortable, where I'm familiar and I can do things fairly quickly. Sure. So you're talking really as the corporate end user, developer, right. folks using the cloud service, not necessarily setting up the infrastructure underneath. If you talk to the research folks in an enterprise, though, you might find them more comfortable with the Google platform. Yep. Because they maybe that's where they did their um, uh, the master's work when they were uh, off at uh, off at school. Uh, for whatever reason, there does seem to be some kind of categorizations of of appeal that I've seen in the field today. Maybe it's going to change, but as it stands now, it seems to me that AWS is really strong in the corporate market. Uh, Microsoft's really strong in the .NET space, and if you're a Microsoft shop, that's probably where you're going to be going. And Google is kind of the the researcher, the uh, uh, the nerd for lack of a better word, uh, who, who loves to play with the toys. Google's got some great toys. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And I think the folks who run each one of those cloud services would want to say, oh, no, we're very, we're, we absolutely appeal to these other audiences. So, And I think yeah. in fairness, there probably is some cross-pollinization. Yeah. But uh, I agree that, 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 that certainly these, they're all communities, ultimately, and the communities have brought in some types of members first, uh, and then, and then I think as these services are going through their kind of rapid development, some of this changes over time, and some may grow stronger. There's one of the really important points that your um, uh, your audience should know about, and that is that um, each of these uh, cloud connection techniques, Google Cloud, Interconnect, um, Express Route, uh, AWS's Direct Connect. Each of them does essentially the same kind of thing. They allow you to get access to your resources in, the, in their particular clouds. The, the, the difference, though, is they use different terms. And that can be really confusing and tends to make people want to stay in their own cloud of comfort. Right. The terminology is uh, one of the forms of, of lock-in that, that you have. Whatever terminology, whatever environment you're most comfortable with, that's where you tend to, to stay. Yeah, I did some research on uh, Kubernetes and containers uh, in the past year. And when you start to look at that, it takes a while to kind of wrap your head around, you know, at what level is the computing actually happening here? And to your point, what services are actually the same as something that's in a competing cloud? Uh, and what are actually you know somewhat distinguished in that way? Yeah, and the other decision you have to make is: Do you want to download and install uh, open source software yourself, or do you want to pay Amazon, who's already doing that for a lot of other people, and pay them a, a fee? Depends on whether you have uh, the in-house expertise and if it's strategic for you to control your network and control your software stack like that. You've traveled all over the world to talk to people about peering. Uh, do you have a favorite story uh, from doing that? Well, I, I'd say the um, uh, my favorite story is probably the 111 8th Street story. Um, there was a uh, power outage in uh, in New York. I'm not sure. It might have been 2006, 2007, something like that. The power went out for the entire New York City. Now, in downtown New York City, there's a place called uh, 111 8th Street. That's a major carrier hotel. This is where all the fibers from uh, Europe uh, are coming in and, and terminating. And, and uh, it, it's a major carrier hotel is the point. Now, the power went out for the entire city of, of New York. Um, and what happens in those cases is there's a thing called an automatic transfer switch. 
that's down in the basement of 111 8th Street that kicks over when the power from the street is turned off. And it kicks over and all the power for the building is from these UPSs, these uninterruptible power supplies. So for a short period of time, the UPSs, these batteries, are powering the entire building until the generators uh, start up, up on the roof of the building. And those generators, once they kick in, they can power the uh, entire building for, uh, for days. Uh, as long as they have fuel for the generators, they can provide enough power. Well, it seemed like the right things were happening. The power went off, the automatic transfer switch kicked over, UPS took over the building load, generators started up on the roof of the building. And the other thing you need to know is up on the roof of the building for those generators were 500 gallon tanks. That was to power, to provide fuel for all of the generators. Now down in the basement after 9-11, uh, they had to have all of the major, the large amounts of fuel underground, not on top of a building uh, for uh, security reasons. So the big 50,000 gallon tank was down underneath. Uh, and the idea was that when the um, power went out, the uh, fuel pump down in the basement would pump the fuel from the 50,000 gallon in the basement all the way up to the rooftop and uh, continually supply the 500 gallon tanks that supplied the diesel generators. It's a long setup. Are you with me though? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So what, what happened was um, the building owner sent a note out to everyone saying, we've lost power. There's a, a citywide power outage, no estimated time of uh, repair, but everything is fine. The generators are cranking away. Your, your uh, equipment is fine at 111 8th Street. And then another note came out, uh, the generator kicked off. One of the generators on the roof, there's four of them, I think, maybe six. One of them kicked off and the building owner said, what's going on there? They sent the guy up to the roof to figure out what's going on. And in the time it took him to get to the roof, second generator kicked off and it, it was off. Then they sent a note to every tenant saying, please turn off unnecessary equipment. We're having a mechanical problem with our generators. And then the third one kicked off. And then a fourth one kicked off. And then they sent out another note saying, you know, you have to turn off all non-essential equipment. We're down to two generators for the entire building, that kind of thing. Um, what's going on here, Steve? What is causing these generators to kick out? Well, the guy up on the roof is trying to figure out that, that very thing. And um, he uh, goes down to the, the basement and um, uh, he, he sees that the, the fuel pump is, is cranking away. So that's the right sound. The fuel pump should be refilling the, the tanks. He goes up to the roof. All the tanks are empty. Last generator kicked off. Now they have no power. Why? Well, it turned out that in a previous month or two, they had replaced the fuel pump and they had tested the fuel pump, but the test involved just seeing if the fuel pump uh, made sounds. It turned out they had the polarity wrong on the pump. Instead of pumping fuel up to the roof top, it was pumping the 500 gallon tank fuels fuel down into the 50,000 gallon oh, so it tank. So just drained the... So it drained the, <laughs> the tanks. And the, the guy's scratching his head, what's going on here? So he goes back down and he hears the fuel pump still cranking away and he tries flipping the polarity. And then all of a sudden he hears the, the fuel going up through the pipes. And he's saying, oh my gosh, they, they, they tested it, but they didn't test to make sure that the, the, the polarity was proper and that this was fully working. So then he goes up to the, uh, the, the roof expecting the generator is going to, uh, to, to be running. Uh, they're not. They're actually silent. And there's plenty of fuel. The fuel tanks are all capped off. Uh, what happened? 
Well, it turned out during all this going up and down the stairs, because remember, there's no power, no elevators, so he had to go up and down the stairs. All this time that was taken going up and down the stairs, uh, the, the generators were constantly trying to turn over, and they burned out the starter motors. So they had to go across the partying streets of New York City. Everyone's having a big old fun time down there. And get to find replacement starter motors for their generators. Six of them. And they finally find them. They go back. Uh, this is hours and hours and hours go by, by the way. And they replace the starter motors. And um, sure enough, the starter motors start cranking over, but they can't seem to, to get the uh, generators to work. Why not? Well, it turns out that when the... Um, fuel tanks got drained down to the bottom. All that sludge on the bottom of the diesel tanks clogged the fuel filters on the generators. So now the guy had to go back across the city uh, of partying, celebrating uh, folks to find replacement fuel filters to put back into the, the generators to get them back and working. So to me, this is an interesting story, not to, you know, um, uh, poo-poo the, uh, um, um, the, the systems that they had in place. They had all the same credentials that any CIO would see on a data center. 2N plus 1 redundancy. We have fuel trucks that are contracted to take two different routes to deliver fuel. All this sort of stuff they have. But look what happened here. We have a cascading set of failures. Uh, one after another. The, the first one, the polarity, uh, you know, caused the fuel filters to get clogged and the starter motors to burn out. And these sort of things happen in, in, uh, in real life. Now, the internet service providers and the carrier community's reaction to this 24-hour-plus outage was fascinating to me because they weren't really annoyed that they had to go without, you know, a, a days of power. They were annoyed because they didn't get scheduled updates from the building owner. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, not that there was a problem. I guess everyone understands that there will be things that will break. Bad things will happen. But the real question is, how does your vendor treat you during the time when they're having a really tough time? Are you a partner or are you more like someone that they want to hide stuff from? That was really the kind of feeling that I got from that story. Thanks, Bill. Uh, yeah, that's a great cautionary tale uh, in testing and in thinking through kind of what goes in a failure plan, what goes beyond the the kind of the first few levels from there. And a good reminder too on peering, the subject of peering, that one of the reasons to uh, connect at various peering exchanges is exactly this. So I think what you were saying in part is a lot of the peering community they weren't too upset there because their peering traffic would have just failed over to another location and been been kind of picked up somewhere else. That, that's right. That's another interesting trade-off that you find in the internet peering ecosystem. Uh, I asked peering coordinators at, at one point, um, how many exchange points would you like to see in a region uh, for offloading your traffic in either peering or transit relationships? Um, and I thought the answer would be, uh, well, one, we want to build into one location only so we can, um, you know, get our traffic offloaded in that one place. And it turns out that half of the people said, yes, we want exactly one location. I said, well, how about redundancy? They said exactly what you said. They said, Bill, uh, for redundancy, we don't want to have extra cost in our peering infrastructure that we have to pay for. We handle redundancy by routing traffic to another place where we interconnect with those same people. You see, they would say we interconnect with those people in multiple locations. And even if we didn't, 
um, having you know just a, a short period of time where we don't have the optimal peering path to that destination, that's something that we can deal with. That was half of the audience saying exactly one. The other half of the audience said we want exactly two exchange points per region. And I said, that's going to be double the cost. And they would say, fine, I don't care about double the cost. I want the redundancy. I want there to be different exchange points operated by different people, different networks, different yep. companies that operate it. I want them to use different switches, uh, different vendors' switches. Uh, we want them to use different security guards. They want to have um, the redundancy be uh, as far into their I infrastructure as that peering infrastructure, having different everything. So it's a, it's a way of re removing systematic risk. So it's great to hear how... Uh companies are approaching their peering strategy in that way, that they might have some difference from there. Um, how would you characterize uh, peering exchanges changing over time in the current day? Are, are, are things different than they were five years ago? Uh, transit costs have come down, so maybe there's the idea that peering is a little bit different than it was uh, certainly 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when I first started um, working with Equinix, I, I traveled about 90% of the time. That's how I, I developed all these relationships and how I collected all these stories that I, I put in the book. A lot of conversations with, uh, with, with folks in the field. And um, when I first started, I would ask people, you know, what's the rough number? What's it cost to buy internet transit these days? And back in 1998, when Equinix was started, the price was $1,200 per megabit per second. Four years later, the price was $120 per megabit per second. Four years later, the price was $12 a megabit per second. And sure enough, we're now four years after that, and it's about a buck 20 per meg and many times less than that. So we're heading towards 12 cents per meg as the next uh, stopping point. But this has been going on since the beginning of, of the commercial internet. Every year, the price drops. Every year, the um, uh, ISPs say no one's making any money at these prices. Um, and every year the prices go down yet again. Uh, there are efficiencies in optical equipment that allow you to get things like you know, 40 gigs or 100 gigs. Um, uh, 400 gigs is coming uh, pretty soon. So these help make it possible to deliver large amounts of bits for lower and lower prices. Um, so that changes the landscape. But we've always had this tension between the ever-dropping price of transit and what is the actual cost of peering. Because with peering, you do need to buy, um, uh, you need to have a router, you need to have transport into a place where you can exchange traffic with somebody else. Uh, maybe you need co-location space for a router. All these different expenses for implementing peering have to go into the mix to figure out does peering make sense financially. Um, it, it's a difficult case to make these days that you're going to save money, but it still can be done. Uh, I know some companies that are doing some pretty clever things to minimize their transit costs. And I'll share one of the tactics uh, from my book. Uh, what you do um, is you take a look at the, um, uh, the way that you're doing global traffic distribution. And if you are buying internet transit in different regions from different ISPs, um, you have a, a bit of a challenge because the 95th percentile, which is how things are, are priced in uh, internet space, uh, the 95th percentile in Europe will be at a different time than the 95th percentile in the United States at a different time from the 95th percentile in Asia. So you're going to be paying. So, so you're saying if your peak traffic kind of goes up at the same time, it's because it's distributed globally, 
uh, and also because audiences will naturally, if something, if a service is commonly used at nine at night or at 1 p.m., that time follows the globe and therefore your peak will move with it. That, that's right. Um, so the, the clever trick that uh, one um, uh, enterprise did was they um, used a single vendor and they told that vendor globally, I want the same time scale to be used for all of my traffic around the world. And that way, the peaks at the 95th percentile in Europe are offset by the valleys in North America and in Asia. And likewise, in North America, the peaks in North America are offset by the valleys in the other parts of the world. And by doing so, you end up having a much flatter uh, demand curve that allows you to get a better usage uh, at, a, at a better price. So for global enterprises, that's a pretty powerful piece to get into your contract negotiation early uh, and make sure it's in the contract. And you have to ask for it. You have yeah. to negotiate for it. And uh, it's um, th there are a whole bunch of really interesting techniques that folks use to, uh, to, to maximize the uh, price performance. Well, thanks, Bill. I'm really enjoying our conversation. Um, I wonder if maybe you could kind of bring it all back together. Why should enterprises care about peering? Really, what what do they most uh, what should they be most hopeful about gaining from uh, having an active peering program as opposed to saying just letting their transit provider deal with it all? Yeah, it's an interesting question. As I said before, the uh, security is the number one reason that people um, go down the path of pursuing peering. The second reason is reliability. Uh, when, when people want to have a, a connection into, say, salesforce.com, the, um, the direct path is the one that has the fewest moving parts in between you and salesforce.com. Fewer routers, fewer links to go down, fewer networks that could be involved in the transaction. So number two is uh, uh, reliability. Number one, security. The third reason is performance. I did some uh, consulting work for a cloud gaming company recently, and these guys have incredibly tight network requirements, uh, extremely low latency, extremely low jitter, large amount of traffic, and almost no tolerance for, for packet loss. Packets that are dropped will be retransmitted before TCP could even have a chance to take a look at whether it needs to be retransmitted. So these are the types of enterprises that have specific network requirements that require the kind of reliability that being uh, closer to the eyeballs uh, can give you. So that's an interesting point. So, you know, I'm probably like a lot of folks lulled sometimes into just thinking the internet is all TCP traffic, TCP IP traffic, uh, but increasingly more things are being accomplished over UDP. Uh, particularly the real-time stuff, absolutely. Uh, the fourth reason that folks go down the peering path is for better visibility. Uh, when you send your traffic over the wall to your transit provider, you really don't have any visibility as to how that traffic is being handled by the second ISP or the third ISP that they hand that traffic off to. Uh, contrast that with where you are directly peered with that fourth ISP in the chain and your traffic goes directly from you to them onto the, uh, the, the final destination. So you have the visibility to see how much traffic you're sending to that fourth ISP in the list. And they have visibility into the traffic that's coming back to you. So when you're trying to debug a problem, you're dealing with the principles that are involved in that transaction. And then finally is cost benefits. This used to be a, a, a primary driver for peering. Uh, you know, everyone wants to be able to offload the traffic for free. But as I said, the price of transit keeps on dropping every single year. And the price of peering drops, but maybe not quite as fast. So it becomes a tenuous case 
in some cases to uh, to make the peering a cost uh, justification type of argument. But those are the five reasons that companies generally will go down the peering path. Well, thanks. Uh, appreciate that. And uh, I think uh, I would, having been through it myself uh, in an organization and uh, talk to peers, would encourage enterprises to have their network teams look into the detail here and see where the cost benefits really, really are, because there really are some. Uh, one more on a on a specific point is remote peering. Uh, so this is a concept that uh, I, I know you've been involved in in, in companies that, that work with remote peering. This is kind of a special form. Why would enterprises look at remote peering? Right. This is one of my favorite plays in the uh, internet peering playbook. Uh, with remote peering, what essentially you can do as an enterprise is contract with a transport provider to get you connected to the most popular peering points that you want to your traffic away from. Now you can do this and the cost to you will be the cost of the port and the cost of the transport to get to the exchange point, but you don't have to pay for a colocation space. You don't have to pay for a router because the remote peering provider is delivering you directly into that switch. Now watch what happens here. If you're smart, what you can do is build in and remotely peer at a whole bunch of peering points all over the country or all over the, all over the world. Um, and then when you see how much traffic you're offloading for free at those various different exchanges, you can then make your decision whether you want to build in permanently and establish a co-located presence and buy a router and participate more fully with that exchange point. And those where you're not delivering a lot of traffic, you can disconnect. And it's just a matter of turning off the, the transport circuit and the port on the peering uh, fabric that you, you, you leased. One thing that was interesting when we were setting up our peering program related to all that was that it's sometimes a little difficult to know exactly who's on a peering exchange. Uh, data centers typically don't want to give out that information because they want to respect the privacy of their customers. Uh, and yet, in order to know it's a good place to peer, you have to have at least some assumption that you have traffic flowing there that you can exchange. Otherwise, you'll show up at a party that there's no one to talk to, essentially. Uh, I know there's peering DB is one way to get visibility into that. Right. Uh, are there other ways that peering teams can find out to develop their peering strategy where they should locate? Yeah. Um, what I advise my clients to do is to start attending some of these internet operations conferences in person. And the reason you do that is a couple of reasons, actually. Um, the first is you want to be able to have an informal conversation about peering many times with these companies to find out what are their peering requirements? Uh, do they peer openly? Would they be receptive to peering with you given the type of traffic that you're uh, going to be exchanging? And you can find out information from other people, like uh, you know maybe you don't want to talk to a particular cable company uh, because you're afraid they're going to say no, or you want to do that one very carefully. But you can find out from people in the field uh, what it's like to try and negotiate peering with that particular company. So there's all kinds of great market intelligence. You, you mentioned that it might be difficult to find out if people are at a particular data center. It's a, it's a bit of a challenge, too, to know how receptive they will be to peering requests. Uh, very often, peering requests just don't go answered. Uh, and sometimes you get a no answer. No, you don't meet our peering prerequisites. But face to face, you can find out, well, you know, sometimes they make exceptions. And these are the things that you can do. Maybe you're not in three locations where they want to meet you, but you're in two locations and you plan on going to that third location next quarter. Those are the types of things that you know there's some wiggle room or not. And that's the type of ground intelligence you can get at these internet operations conferences. Great discussion. Thank you, Bill.
That's it for our episode today. I'm your host, Steve Ginsberg, and I want to thank our guest, Bill Norton. You can find more information from Bill on drpeering.net. And of course, we're available at gigohome.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of CIO Speaks, please check out the other episodes in this series. Optimizing network interconnection in the changing cloud landscape is the focus of a new report called Connecting Clouds that Steve wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how IT leaders and organizations are overcoming challenges in the evolving cloud era, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.